You're listening to episode 62. Hey there, Business Generals family. Welcome to another super episode of the Business Generals podcast where I feature amazing guests and I ask in-depth questions about their entrepreneurial journey. You know, my belief is that It doesn't matter how your journey in life started. It's not that important because great or small, the important thing is how you finish. So whatever your situation today, I want you to know that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to chase your dreams. In today's show, family, I dig into how it all started for our future guests, how they have built their brand, and I even get into all the juicy details about how their big challenges came through, their growth moments, and all their big breakthroughs. So it's going to be an amazing show. I actually selfishly started this podcast because I love to hear how entrepreneurs did it and I wanted to ask the questions for myself. So really, I am the number one student in this family, just so you know. So get ready for amazing coaching tips, family, to help you maximize your business dreams. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Journals podcast where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. Really excited to have you join us on this show. Remember to hit subscribe on your podcast player so that you do not miss an episode. It's Davis Mutabo here, your host, and I'm very excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. Kyle Racky. Welcome to the Business Journals Podcast, Kyle. Thanks for having me, Davis. Wonderful. Well, Kyle is an amazing entrepreneur. He is the founder of Proposify, and he is also the host of Proposify Business Chat, a wonderful podcast there that has been running for just over two years. And I'm really excited to hear Carl share his story about how he has transitioned um, throughout his career and to find himself as the CEO and founder of Proposify, um, helping a global audience of customers as uh, he was explaining to me just before when we got started. So Carl, really excited to dig into, dig into your story. Um, give us a little bit of a snapshot about your personal background outside of business. Sure. So... I actually trained as a designer in my in my younger days when I was around 20 years old. I went to a community college and took graphic design, and that's what I thought I wanted to be. Worked in the agency world here in uh, Nova Scotia, Canada, where I live, and you know, generally just learned the ropes of working in an agency and working in advertising, and and uh, sort of as web design was really emerging uh, as its uh, as its own kind of specialty in the early 2000s. And then eventually I got kind of sick of working for other people. I was about 24 years old. And so after a year of kind of hustling to get my own clients on the on freelance side, I struck out on my own as a freelancer. And uh, I did that for about a year before starting a small web design agency with uh, a guy that I met in the agency world named Kevin Springer. And he and I started and ran that agency for about five years before then starting Proposify, which we're both uh, doing now. Right. So safe to say you've been full-time since then. How long ago was that? We've been full-time in Proposify for the last three years. Uh, 2014 was kind of the pivotal year where we managed to sell the agency that we were running. And around the same time, I think within the same month, raised a seed round of funding for Proposify. And with the agency... How many years did you do that for? I always try to get a bearing on how long people have been full-time on their own. Mm-hmm. So I've been, I guess you could call me a self-employed entrepreneur uh, since two, early 2008. So I guess that's coming up on 10 years. I was going to say seven, which is bad math. So yeah, <laughs> 10 years. That's, really <laughs> that's, that's been good. Um, and how have you found that, that journey? Was that something you'd always wanted to do? 
it's funny. I never thought that I would be an entrepreneur. And now it's been, I've been long, you know, in, in terms of my working career, I've been in business for myself a lot longer than I was ever uh, an employee working at other people's companies. So it's, it's sort of made up the, the bulk of my career now. Uh, no, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. In fact, I was terrified of it. Uh, I had, I had grown up in a very kind of lower middle class family and my parents both worked. They were both, um, my mother was a nurse and my father worked mm -hmm. in nursing homes, kind of doing maintenance and that sort of thing, a little you know, blue collar. Uh, and so I think their generation and, and just their background, they were always very shy of the idea of being entrepreneurs, starting small businesses. I kind of grew up with the idea of business is very risky. You know, you're basically destined to fail. You've got like a 1% chance of making it in business. So I kind of grew up with this idea in my, in my household. So when I struck out on my own, that was very, uh, it was, it was very scary, but it was also very calculated. I, I had seen other people around me, friends and colleagues that left agencies and went out on their own as freelancers. And I knew that I kind of knew that I could do it. So, uh, they were supportive of it, but they definitely were afraid for me. Very interesting. Yeah. My, my mom, um, was a nurse. My dad was an accountant. Um, so, yeah, it was business was not really something that was big at uh, you know growing up in my household either. Although they they did try and dabble in different businesses, so that kind of opened up our eyes a little bit. But um, yeah, interesting to see how your journey has evolved. What would you say, Kyle, are your core revenue streams as a business today? We uh, at Proposify we're a software as a service business, so uh, our revenue model is pretty simple. People sign up for a free trial of the online product Proposify which is a proposal software for people that write business proposals. It's kind of a simplified way of creating and sending those proposals and getting them signed off. There are different pricing plans based on how many proposals you write and sort of different features in the product. So it's just a simple monthly and annual subscription. And as of uh, just about a week ago, we hit our 5,000th paid account in the product. Congratulations. Thank you. So that's what, three years, did you say, or five years? About three years since we uh, went full-time into Proposify. That's pretty good. Um, so 5,000 paying customers, and that's obviously monthly subscription. How's the retention on, on your product? It's pretty good. Our churn is, um, in terms of customer churn, it's about 4%. In terms of MRR churn, monthly recurring revenue churn, we're at about uh, sometimes under 1%, which is really nice. So uh, retention is that's pretty nice good. Too. I think it's always, for any SaaS business, it's always a, kind of a metric you're always watching and always trying to keep churn as low as it can be. And how did that journey for you start when you went into that agency business um, that you were mentioning just before? Everything that I've done so far, it's not, none of it's really been planned from the beginning. It always seems to just organically evolve and grow. It basically started with, I was freelancing in, in 2008. I was doing web design development kind of as my own, on my own for clients. I had my own client list. And then I got a little bit lonely as an entrepreneur. You know, I think the dream of, of working in your pajamas uh, out of your house, it sounds very glorious and, and awesome when you first hear about it. And then after a few months of basically being a shut-in and, and not ever mm -hmm. having to get up and go to work or talk to anybody, it, it just wasn't for me. I know some people love it, but uh, I really like having a team. And I also liked I really like doing certain things, but I hate doing other things. So I'm not a natural accountant like yourself. Hate doing invoicing and 
you know, uh, hate, uh, actually at the time I hated selling, I hated going out and doing new business development kind of stuff. So I, I really wanted a team and I wanted to kind of stick to what I did best and then hire better people to do all those other things. So that was where basically mm-hmm. my business partner, who was actually still working in an agency, he's about 20 years my senior. He had run a lot of businesses in the past and this agency job was kind of one of his first real full-time um, employee type of jobs. He was looking to finally get back out on his own and, and be an entrepreneur again. So he told me he was going to start a consulting business. I had already been out for about eight months doing my own freelance business. So I said, well, why don't you just partner with me and we'll start an agency together and you can go out and bring in the clients because that's what he's very good at. I'll make mm-hmm. sure, you know, I'll get the work done. And that was really the idea for how we just started on, and we called it Headspace. He started with me and then we started hiring people and we grew to about 10 people. So how were you getting your customers at the beginning? At the very beginning, I mean, he had been doing sales at a, an agency prior to that in, in the area that we live in. So he already kind of had a bit of a Rolodex in terms of people that he could reach out to, warm leads, warm contacts. But honestly, we were uh, we struggled a lot as an agency. We, we did very good the first year. We had a very low overhead. We had some really good projects that came in just through kind of Kevin, you know, picking up the phone or knocking on some doors and, and getting some clients in the door. I, I think we struggled uh, with the business as we started to grow and as we started to hire people, it became a lot harder to sustain that amount of sales, you know, to, to cover the cost. I think like agency businesses are very volatile. Uh, it's not like a subscription service where it kind of just grows every month. It's, it's always very up and down. You're sometimes you're slammed with projects and, you know, you, you almost don't have enough resources to do them. And then there's dry spells where there's nothing coming in. So managing that cash flow and those long sales cycles, we actually really struggled a lot with his, uh, with the agency, which is why we wanted to become more of a SaaS business. Right. What were the core product offerings in the agency? You know, we were very general. We This was about, you know, 2009 or so. So uh, social media mm. and digital marketing was certainly there, but it was uh, it was more in its infancy. So we were doing a lot of web design work, a lot of user experience, kind of UX engagements, a little bit of online marketing. Um, but I think one of our biggest problems with the agency was that we just didn't have a specialty. And one thing that I've seen some of the bigger agencies and some of the, the really successful ones have a very unique specialty. They have a niche. For example, there was one local agency that we used to compete with for tourism contracts. So tourism is very big in Nova Scotia and kind of the surrounding area in Canada. The government puts a lot of money into it. And so we were doing a lot of web design contracts for like Prince Edward Island and, and no parts of Nova Scotia. There was another agency mm-hmm. that we were competing with for these contracts, but the difference was that they actually stuck in that specialty and they started to go outside of the region. They started to go into the U.S. and get contracts from really big companies, uh, you know, Miami, the Caribbean, um, you know, Bahamas, like so really big clients they started to bring in. And it was because they focused on that niche. We never focused on a niche. And so we always were just competing with local companies for smaller contracts. And you felt that would have played a bigger role in the success of your agency at the time, right? If you had focused. Absolutely. And I, and I think it still would for anybody running a service business, especially when you're doing something like web design or just design in general or marketing. Those services are becoming more and more commoditized on the smaller end, especially with 
things like Wix and Squarespace and do-it-yourself website builders. It's just very hard for small service companies to go after mom-and-pop businesses and, and new startups because there's so many free tools or cheap tools that people can use to get websites. So the only way for an agency to really thrive is to go on the higher end and to be able to offer services to larger companies. And the only way those bigger companies are going to hire a small agency to do it is if they have an extremely specialized skill and they're not competing with this large pool of generalists. I like that. That's good value. Um, How did that idea then sort of fizzle out or transition into Proposify? So back when I was freelancing, I always had just uh, just a fun little side project idea was, you know, I had worked on proposals a lot when I was in the agency business. And I also, as I was going out on my own as a freelancer, I had to put together proposals to win new clients. And so just for fun, I thought it'd be fun to build like a little SaaS product for proposal management. And I actually wasn't, I didn't really have the coding chops to be able to do it. So it was kind of more of just a wireframe or a prototype. And I, that was it. I just, I just put it in the shelf and, uh, and didn't really think about it for quite a few more years. I think I mentioned it to Kevin a few times, but it was really like just an early idea. And then as we were in the process of running our business and running into these issues, we were just getting very tired of the agency business, tired of, you know, always having to chase down clients for payments. So we thought, you know, we should, we were very inspired by Jason Freed and DHH from, from Basecamp and 37 Signals and their approach and how they got Basecamp off the ground. We thought we wanted to be the same thing. We wanted to be that small service agency that transitions into a SaaS company. And so we actually, over the course of a couple of years, tried out a few different SaaS products none of which really worked out, which I can kind of go into more detail on if you want. But eventually we sort of got, went, okay, what about this old proposal app idea? And kind of dug out the old wireframes and, and rejigged it a little bit. And then we started really going very, uh, very hard core on, on proposal, what became Proposify uh, and eventually transitioned transition out of it, which was, you know, a story on its own. I'm interested in looking at how you've developed a SaaS product, you know, using um, some of the techniques that you've, you've used. You said you, you didn't have all the coding chops at the beginning, but you managed to create a wireframe. So what does that mean to somebody who's listening? You know, I, I was trained and had experience on being able to kind of create what the interface would look like in terms of how it would flow, the look and feel, but in terms of actually making it a reality and writing the code behind it, I wasn't quite skilled enough a developer to pull off a product like Proposify. So that was really why I ended up sitting on it. And then as we were running the agency and trying to build uh, SaaS products internally, we had developers on the team. Uh, we, We ran into the problem of just not having the time to do it because when you, and and a lot, so here's what a lot of agencies do is they have an idea for a SaaS product. They treat it like an internal product project and they assign a resource to it to kind of work on it maybe one day a week. And so if you're a developer working on a product, you, you, you're working on different client projects all week. And then maybe Friday you open up the, the, the SaaS product, start working on that. And by the time you kind of get your head into it and start building out a few things, it's the end of the day and it's time to, you know, it's time for the weekend. And now it's Monday again, and you're back on old client work. And so eventually like the product just never gets off the ground. It never happens. So I think that if you're, mm-hmm. if you are trying to build uh, an internal digital product, 
you need to find some way to get a dedicated resource. So that would be a developer that doesn't do anything else. They don't touch client work. All they do is work on the project uh, or on the product rather. That's what we ended up doing. We, we actually got a grant to hire a, a developer and they paid 80% of the developer's salary for one year. And that was Jonathan, who's now our, our CTO. So he just worked 100% on the product while I kind of worked with him on the design. And, you know, Kevin and I ran the agency as well. Talk to me about the grant. What, how did that come about? And how can someone look at that as a left-wing idea to execute on? A lot of it depends where you live. We're, we're somewhat lucky where we live here in Canada. There are more government programs. We also pay a lot higher taxes, but... There are pro- programs that they uh, they put into small businesses and especially startups and tech companies because there's been a lot of big exits uh, in the region over the last five years. So there's actually a, a thing in Canada called Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency or ACOA. And I had attended uh, a demo day or a, a demo camp, it was called, to kind of pitch our early stage prototype and show off what we were doing. And so when I did that, a was in the audience and they came up to us afterwards and said, Hey, if you guys are looking for, if you guys need some help, we're happy to help out. So that was kind of how that came along. Um, and then later on, we actually got an investment from another government related, uh, organization called Innovacor, which put in $250,000 in seed funding. I like that. So you were out there presenting your idea to a different platform, looking for one result, but then you got a different result, which was still giving you the same outcome. Yes. And I think that anybody who's looking to get funding, um, the best thing to do is to go to startup events where they let you pitch or demo. If you can show your product or if you can put up a slide deck and start, you know, pitching your idea, um, there's almost always investors or government people who have grants uh, in the audience looking for that stuff. It's way more effective than looking them up in a directory and trying to phone call them. And that, that's good value. And I think at the end of the day, you're going to get feedback, you know, live feedback. It's like being at a Shark Tank sort of presentation where the investors will tell you what they think straight away based on their experience. And at least you can take some, some learnings out of it or some encouragement or whatever. And uh, you never know where, where, where the conversation goes. So that's pretty good. Totally, yeah. Um, how did the um, the idea actually come about originally and how did you know you could sort of execute on it? I know you took a while where you shelved it, but what, what made you bring it back up again? We were kind of at the point where we were really just throwing ideas at the wall to see what stuck. So we had tried like a, a do-it-yourself website builder that was kind of like Wix or Squarespace before that came out. We called it Site Tea, like the tea you drink. And it had a couple of customers, but it was a really kind of just crappy product. It didn't work very well. Um, we had tried like a social media analysis tool called Social Gopher that um, we put out there and again had a few customers. And then we found, you know, it just didn't have the traction. And I wasn't interested enough in it. It was too expensive to actually to run that product because of the data cost behind it. So there was a whole lot of reasons why we ended up shelving that. And so then Proposify was just one other one of those ideas that we just said, hey, let's throw it out there and try it and see what people think. And the reason why we stuck with it was because I did that demo camp. And it was because when I when I demoed the early stage mock-up and prototype of the product, afterwards I had a lot of people coming up to me and saying, wow, proposals, that's a huge pain point. I hate writing them. Anything you can do to make that easier for me, I will pay for that. 
So we got actual customer validation you know, at a scale very different from any of the other products we had put out before. When we tried other products, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I'll try that out. And then with Proposify, it was like, man, that's a massive, massive pain. So I think a takeaway for listeners is that if you're looking for a business idea that you want to, you're trying to find out whether or not you should go all in and really like shoot for the stars, focus mm-hmm. on the pain. If you can elicit a response from people, that's basically them saying, wow, that's a massive pain. That is like, I hate this. This problem just cost me so much time and money. I, if you can solve that, I'll pay you for it. I mean, that is, that's when you know to go all in on that idea. I love that. How long were you giving yourself before you would cut the other projects, like the DIY um, web builder and, you know, the social media analytics one? Um, it was a pretty easy choice for us. It was just, they really just fizzled out after we launched them. And, and I think a lesson that we learned when we were doing this was that we kind of thought about, okay, from the time you have an idea to when you launch it, there's a lot of time in there where you're trying to design the product and get it right before you even put it in front of customers. And then once mm-hmm. we've had it in front of customers, we thought that's where we start making money. But what I've learned since is that until you get a product in somebody's hands, you haven't even begun. Like you're at step zero. Um, and I, what I see is a lot of people, especially uh, people who are maybe developers that are kind of working on their own ideas, is they're tinkering away on a product for years, like literally years. I've, I spoke to somebody who said that he had a product in development for five years just as his side hustle, and he hadn't mm. got a single person to touch it yet. It wasn't ready. And I said, mm. Until you get somebody using it, you're, you haven't started. So that five years is wasted. Like, seriously, get something out in three months, two months, as little time as it takes, and then you can actually begin to learn. Because when we put Proposify out there as an actual product, like an MVP, a minimal viable product, mm-hmm. we didn't hit the proverbial product market fit when people actually start to really love it and pay for it. We didn't hit that product market fit for about 17 months. So that was a year and a half mm. slog of just putting out new releases, listening to people, seeing how they use it, fixing it, building new features. Like it's, it's just a grind. So what did you present at those initial sort of startup, um, Kickstarter type things that you were doing uh, at the beginning? Was it just a slide deck? Um, it was a little bit more than that. It was kind of like an, an initial go at the product. Very, uh, very early stage it's I kind of liken it to um you know those old episodes of the Simpsons from like season one where the where the Simpsons look really ugly and horribly drawn and their voices aren't even Mm. right and then like a few years later like that's the Simpsons we all know and love like that was kind of what we were like like the first product was just ugly looking back on it now is painful but it was kind of like the first kick at the idea and the other thing is that because we hadn't really launched it yet and had enough time to develop it, there's a lot of features that we now have that are critical to the product and how we position and sell it that we didn't even know customers wanted. So, for example, the idea of having pre-made proposal templates that are all already written, designed, ready to go, that was not something we launched with. The idea of having online signatures so people could sign legally through the browser or on, on their phone that wasn't something mm. that we had even thought of until people asked for it. Also being able to see when people open your proposal, where they look, what sections they view the most, all that kind of analytics stuff. 
not an idea that we even had at the beginning. It was only through putting it out there and getting people's feedback and having enough people say, oh, I wish it had this. So, so walk us through the, the core features that, you know, are within the Proposify as of now that, you know, have given it the most amount of traction that listeners can sort of learn from. Yeah. So, I mean, I think our value prop has been pr- pretty refined now uh, over the years and we really know who our audience is and what they like to get out of the product. So essentially what it is, is we get a lot of people searching for a lot of the customers that we get initially are the people who are searching on Google for web design proposal template or inbound marketing proposal template or landscaping proposal template. We've got a whole, a whole bunch of them that are landing pages on our site. And then when they sign up to the product, they're actually basically kicked right into the product to start editing the template. So essentially what it is, is we've got templates for different proposals that people write, but really kind of the value that we provide, that's sort of like a hook to get people in and using it. But over time, people will save time writing proposals because they can put all of their content in a content library so they can save all their products, their fees, their images, sections of text, etc. are all stored there. And that was a big problem before where a lot of people who are using Word or Google Docs to write proposals, you know, they're always hunting around for content and going, oh, I wrote a case study a year ago for this mm. company. Where is that? That's stored somewhere. And oh, like, what are the latest changes? I don't think that one's updated yet. So just finding all that content was a huge pain for people. And ours is yeah. more or less, you basically create your library of content and then you drag and drop it and you spit out a proposal in minutes compared to the hours or days it used to take a lot of people. So there's kind of like the time-saving element on, on, on one hand of the value that we offer. But then on the other hand, it's, this, it's actually the sending of the proposal. So back in the day, and people still do this, they'll email a PDF to their client and say, hey, take a look at our proposal. Let me know if you have any questions. And then they don't hear from that client and they wonder, oh, should I follow up? You know, getting that deal closed takes some time. And then even if a client says yes, how do you make it official? Oh, well, you've got to print out, a, um, you print out the proposal and sign the last page and then scan it or fax it back to me. It's, it was always a really big nightmare just getting it closed. With our software, mm-hmm. you basically send it through Proposify and then you know when your client opens the proposal because they're actually just opening a web link and they're viewing it in the browser. So it's kind of a better experience for clients where they can look at your proposal and they can check on and off optional fees. They can kind of interact with it a little bit more, leave comments. And it's better for you because you can know, oh, my client looked at all these sections and, oh, they opened it 10 times. Maybe I, I should definitely follow up because they're super interested in it. That's really good. I'm actually just um, having a quick look at your your website. It's really well designed, by the way. It looks really good, oh. really interactive and um easy to walk through. I obviously got drawn to the accounting proposal as, <laughs> as you would. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They're not, uh, accountants are a huge bulk of our, our client base yet, but we are starting to get more and more accountants using it, which is nice. Yeah. There's always um, a push for accounting firms to grow their revenue base because there's always that natural attrition. So they're always writing proposals. Anytime it goes a little bit quiet, you know, there's tenders, there's government audits, there's all this sort of stuff going on all the time. So, but you know, as you were saying before, if you got a niche, and I think uh, previously you, you, you said in one of your other interviews that you primarily just focused the niche down to web agencies. Is that something you're evolving away from? I think we're always going to have uh, a lot of customers in the agency space. It's just the space that we know a lot of me and Kevin and a lot of people that work in Proposify have all come from web design or marketing agencies, and that's our background. So the content that we write, the blog posts, the podcasts, etc., 
they just have naturally have that, you know, that, that sort of angle behind them. Uh, it's harder to write content for landscapers or architects or accountants because we just haven't come from that mm-hmm. business. I think we want to keep our core base and our core audience of, of agencies, but we also want to expand and open it up to a lot of other industries because really, yes, there are some differences across industries in terms of how they sell. You know, uh, somebody who's doing a construction proposal is going to price things and, and write things different than a web design agency. But at the end of the day, business is business. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of universal truths when it comes to selling in general. I want to ask you, how did you come to your very first paying client? You said you've got now up to 5,000. Um, do you still remember who was the first one and how that came about? I don't quite recall who the first one was. Like, I can't remember their name or their company. I do remember there was a moment where we said, oh, wow, somebody upgraded to a paid account. That's crazy because we didn't even talk to them. Um, <laughs> you know, it was just they, they found it and they signed up to a trial and then they converted. I think they left pretty quickly afterwards, maybe after a month we lost them. But uh, yeah, it was pretty mm. exciting getting that first customer. I mean, a big thing that we did there was before the product was actually launched, we started putting it out there. We had a landing page built for it with like a, a sign up form to get notified when we launch. Started doing guest blogs, uh, started writing a blog about proposals and pitching and how to win proposals, etc. Um, doing a lot of marketing work before the propo- before the, the product is actually launched is super important. And I'd, I'd recommend mm. people do that. Don't wait until it's launched to start getting the word out there. But it's going to, you know, it's naturally going to be a long haul in terms of getting a lot of regular traffic to the site. But, you know, at the beginning, you can put up a landing page. You can send a little bit of AdWords or Facebook traffic to it. Start doing a little bit of, um, you know, guest blogging or being on podcasts or that sort of thing. And just start getting traffic to the site. And then once you've got people signing up to the product and using it, it's just a matter of how great is the product? How great is the onboarding? And can you actually convince somebody to take out their credit card and upgrade to a paid account. Absolutely. And was that your core growth strategy even after you launched? So, you know, guest posting, podcasting, and a bit of ads, Google and Facebook? I've always been a big believer in inbound marketing and content marketing. I think it's it's a good long-term strategy. Uh, it's good for a lot of reasons, not just traffic, but also just brand building. Because if, if somebody's a customer and then they find your blog and, and sign up to get new posts every week, you really start to build an audience. You really start to build a relationship rather and trust with that person. And they begin to they, to be loyal to your product, not just because of the product, but because they feel an attachment to you as a company personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always been very big and, and very important to me. But at the same time, like, you know, as you, as you get bigger and as you start to scale a business, then you've really got to start looking at more paid acquisition and building a sales team that all that stuff becomes a lot more important as you want to become grow into a big company. But at the very beginning, in the first couple of years, I think you can build a great business uh, without spending a cent on salespeople or ads and really just work at being great at producing content and great at networking and getting your content on other people's networks. And at what point in your professional career did you start doing lots of content production and was it just blogging or more than that it was blogging at the beginning um guest posts Mm. and you know there was some scrappy things i did in the earlier days too just to get people uh to the product i know one thing that i did was one of our competitors who was one of the earliest companies to market in the proposal space 
they were had already been out for a few years and were a little bit more established. And they had a thing going on where they would actually get people like their customers to write reviews on their own website. And I think they would get like a free year or something of usage on, on the product. So I went to all those people's websites, all those customers of the competitor who had written reviews for the competitor. And I just wrote in the comments section and I said, Hey, this looks like a great product for one. That's a little bit more design focused. Check out Proposify. And I posted a link to it. So I was really kind of trolling a little bit and just like going like, where are people looking for proposal software and, and trying to get even just a handful of people to, to click the link and find out about it. That's interesting. Now, you introduced a podcast to your content uh, um, marketing. How, how did that come about? Why a podcast? A lot of it came because I knew I wanted, I knew our core audience was, uh, was agency owners and it had it had then been about a year since I really ran an agency and I was starting to run the well was starting to run dry on ideas. And I felt like, uh, my experience as an agency owner is fairly limited. I ran a small 10 person agency for, for five years, but you know, if I wanted to create really great content around, okay, well, how do you land a a client like Nike or Coke, or how do you build a hundred person agency or, you know, how do you build an agency in LA versus Nova Scotia? Like those are just things that I can't really speak to and I can't offer that kind of value. But you know what? There are other agency owners out there who, who do have that experience. So that was really kind of what seeded the idea to say, maybe I should just start a podcast and get a whole bunch of other agency owners on it, talking about their experience and just offer a wider variety of, uh, of opinions and, and, and tips and experience that people can draw from. And how have you found the journey so far as a podcaster? I think it's good. I mean, I think any kind of content marketing play is you have to really go all in and you have to treat it like it's its own company almost, like it's its own product. It has an audience. It has a target customer. You acquire customers by getting them to subscribe and you keep, you know, you retain customer customers by having them not unsubscribe from you. Um, but you have to deliver a product that meets their needs. So the way I think about content marketing is I think about it as you have to treat it like it's its own company and its own product. And that becomes a little difficult when you've already got a company and a product that really generates money. But, you know, your content marketing play sort of feeds you new leads and new customers into your actual company. So there's definitely a, a, a pull there where you, you know, it's hard to focus on the blog or the podcast in the same way that you focus on your other business. I think that's been the the biggest struggle because there are definitely people out there who like their blog is their business. And so they put a hunt like every single day they wake up and work on content. And for me, it's, it's been a lot more, uh, there's been a lot more conflicted in terms of priorities. Um, but at least it's getting, it's getting you that balance of, um, organic leads um, to, to balance off on the paid leads, I'm assuming. Oh, yes. Uh, we, you know, 90% of our customers or more come through organic channels. So it could be the blog or it could be um, just direct traffic because they heard about us or they another site referred us. So uh, actually paid makes up a very small percentage of our customers. So, you know, mm-hmm. thankfully, because I made that investment in the early days and we kept kept investing in content and built up a marketing team that can help with producing content that's paid off in, you know, dividends. Like we, we get 6,000 new trials a month, all purely from people just finding us through 
content and through other methods. So just help me understand, how have you set that up over over that time? What's the funnel look like to, to get you that 6,000 um, new trials? So it's, I mean, it's really just having a marketing site that, um, you know, that communicates effectively the value proposition of the product. Um, and then also having a blog that, you know, producing good, you know good articles that are keyword targeted for for good searches. So, for example, one of our most highly trafficked blog post is mm-hmm. one called "How to Write an Executive Summary." So, it's not even really the the sexiest of topics, right? It's we've written blog posts that are a lot more kind of maybe controversial or personal, and those you know certainly people like. But one of the ones that gets the most search traffic is literally just people typing how to write an executive summary, finding the blog post. And that's, that's our most popular blog post. Um, so there's the search angle. And then, like I said, there's the proposal template. So people searching for uh, free, you know, marketing proposal template or accounting proposal template. Um, search is a huge part of our inbound strategy. How do you recommend or how would you coach somebody who's trying to, you know, replicate something similar for their agency or for their you know, accounting business. How do, how do you maximize your search? Do you think what works for you guys? I mean, I think there's a lot of great resources out there to find how to do, how to, you know, optimize for search. And of course it changes a lot. A lot of it comes down to content and that you're actually creating content that people want and they're searching for. So first of all, you've got to make sure that whatever content or page you're creating aligns with you, you know, something that your audience would be searching for. And then uh, basically creating that content and making sure, you know, the title tag, the headline, everything, it flows organically. It's good for readers, but then it also, uh, you know, it's something that is good for search engines. So it's a lot of striking that balance. Um, we had a really good podcast just recently. It was called, Are You Wasting Your Time on These SEO Best Practices? And it was an, an interview with a guy in the U.S. from an SEO agency. He is super knowledgeable. So if people want to look that up, that's a, that's a really good uh, interview for some, some good in-depth SEO. That's good. Thanks for that. We'll, we'll link that up in the show notes um, and uh, people can, can reach that. What we also do for, for all of us listening, uh, all our listeners, is we, we're going to prepare a short highlight reel of everything that we're talking here with Carl. And uh, you can be able to access that at our businessjournals.com forward slash Kyle R. So K-Y-L-E-R. So jump onto that link at the end of this show. Um, Carl, give us a bit of a, a perspective of how, where, what, what's the size of your business now? You've said you've reached up to your 5,000 paid customer. Can you share you know, your team size, your reach, your revenue, whatever you're able to share with us? Yeah, we're, we're pretty transparent with a lot of these things. We don't, uh, we don't keep a lot of these numbers close to our chest because I think everybody can, it's, it's helpful for everybody to have a, a good sense of where we're at. So you know, it's, it's like that barometer. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of the size, we're now 23 people, counting the founders, so 21 employees plus two founders. Um, that team is is kind of a mix between developers, uh, product, um, QA, salespeople, marketers, customer support. I see us over the next 12 months starting to really scale up our product and sales team a lot more. That's where we're kind of seeing the most um, the most growth potential in the business. And in terms of revenue, we passed earlier this year about three million in annual recurring revenue, as as far as uh, subscribers go. So we're trying to, um, you know, obviously grow that ARR a lot more and be at around uh, five by the end of the year and maybe ten by the end of next year. So that's kind of what we're we're aiming for. 
That's great. I mean, in a couple of years, um, hitting those numbers um, is no small feat. Does that? How does that compare with what you had before in the in the agencies? Huh. I think we actually no, we never cracked the one million mark of revenue in the agency. That was something I think we had gotten close. We might have gotten somewhere around eight hundred thousand in a year of revenue, but mm-hmm. we never uh, we never hit the one million. Yeah, that's good. That's a congratulations on that. What what would you say has been the biggest breakthrough moment so far in the Proposify? Has there been one moment or just a combination of compounding different things? Mm. There's not really a moment of, of breakthrough. It is a lot of little moments that all add up to a big thing. You know, I think that probably the breakthrough moment was the month that we hit product market fit. Because we had been mm-hmm. we had been trying for a very long time to to hit this magical uh, thing that we, you know, you hear of in legend, but you don't know if it really exists, this product market fit, not even really knowing what that looked like. Um, and so we struggled every month. You know, we, we'd get a handful of new customers. We'd lose a handful of customers. We kind of hovered around 20 customers. And, but uh, I mean, in terms of revenue, it was, I think, less than $1,000 in monthly recurring revenue. Um, we were a team of four and we obviously needed to, to grow our revenue in order to keep going with the business. I think we had maybe about six months worth of investment money left in the bank uh, in terms of our mm-hmm. uh, runway before we ran out of money. So it was very scary and, and hectic for a while to go like, okay, you know, just try to stay calm and stay focused knowing that your <laughs> money is running out. And then I remember we made some changes to the product, the onboarding, the, we added the templates, we made a few feature adjustments and then it was almost like a light switch went off. And one month we went from, I think like we had been hovering around that eight, $900 in monthly recurring revenue. And then we jumped to like 1500 in, I think September or October of 2014. And that we, you know, at first we were like, Holy, Whoa, what happened? We just doubled our revenue in one month. Like, we went from 20 customers to 40 or something. And we're like, that was, mm. that was interesting. Okay. Maybe that was just a, a, a fluke. Right. And then the next month it went to like 80 customers and, and 3000 in ARR. And we were like, wow. Okay. And then the next month it went to 5,000 and it just started to scale really quickly. Um, so we knew we had hit product market fit. And that was, that was that moment where we were like, wow, we pulled this off somehow. Well, that's good. And, and I, was, I was just interviewing somebody just before, um, and um, one of the founders of, of WooThemes and WooCommerce, um, AD. Oh, Pana, I just and, spoke and to him uh, two days ago. Oh, did you? There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so he was like, you know, the, he tested a different, different things, and finally some of those things started to work. Um, so it's a bit, a bit like what you were saying there where you, you, you kept tweaking and the features and then suddenly it starts to take off. Do you have like free and, and paid? Like a free plan on the Proposify? Yeah. Um, no, we have a free trial. We actually experimented with, uh, with freemium plan, like a free forever plan. And it, it, it didn't mm. work out so well. So we took that down. <laughs> right. So it's 30 day trial and then people convert to pay to you know what's interesting there, and this is this is a, a takeaway I think for people is is never stop testing, never mm. sp- stop experimenting because we had 14 day trials for a long time. Then we switched them to 30 days, with the theory being people have more time in the product, they'll get more addicted, and they'll be more likely to upgrade to a paid account. We ran that test for almost a year. Looking back at the data, realized that actually our conversion rate was like double with 14 day free trials. So we went back to 14-day free trials earlier this year. Our conversion rate doubled. The data doesn't lie. Why do you think that is? 
<laughs> I don't know. I think because maybe people, I think when you give somebody 30 days with a product, they're enthusiastic when they first try it out. And then if they have too much free time with it, they just, their interest wanes, they get distracted. They start, they start just going somewhere else. So I think when you give yeah. somebody a shorter time frame to, to use a product, there there's more urgency and then they'll get to the end of the 14 day free trial run out of time. And then they're more likely to upgrade. That's kind of my theory behind it. But you know, you always have to test for your own product. There are products out there where they have better retention within a 60 day trial, right? Like it's, it's always different depending on the business. I remember interviewing um, AJ Prasad from um, Repugen and um, I think GMR transcription services. And he said, I think none of his none of his products have got a free trial because he feels you you never get the real um, cons- customer feedback um, unless somebody has actually paid money. Well, that's his theory, mm-hmm. and um, the conversions are not that high on the free piece. And I think what you're saying there on the 14 days, you know, somebody quickly runs out of time, they make a payment, and because they've made a payment, they're going to make sure they use the product and actually make sure they give you the feedback to for you guys to improve and that that helps everybody. So I think that's, that's one theory. I think that's, um, that's out there. And for, like you said, some work and for bigger accounts too. Like if you're selling into enterprise and even slightly larger, uh, accounts, it's often, like you said, no trial it's, it's contact a salesperson, have them do a demo. And a lot of times bigger companies, once they find a product and once they're sold on it, they'll actually fork over the, you know, annual payment without having ever even tried it for themselves. That's just how they buy it. Mm. Uh, that's amazing. Carl, time has just flown by, um, so we're coming to the end of the show, but I want to ask you these uh, last two questions. Um, what will be the best two books that you've read that you think are great reads for entrepreneurs? You know, I, I, I looked at this question earlier, and I wanted to make sure I had some, some, good, uh, some good answers. I'm, I always try to keep, keep up with books. I'm currently reading Tools of Titans by uh, Tim Ferriss, which I'm enjoying um, earlier this year, I read Things a Little Bird Told Me, which was about one of the Twitter co- co-founders, um, Biz Stone. Um, those, are, those are good books more recently. I think the ones that had the biggest impact on me as an entrepreneur and the ones that were very pivotal in um, helping me get to where I've gotten to have been the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. That was inspirational. I actually read that on a plane flying over to London about maybe six years ago. And on the way back, I was so inspired by it. I, uh, I started sketching up the, you know, the wireframes for Proposify, what eventually would become Proposify. So that was pretty influential. And then also um, a really good book for startups to look at is Lean Analytics. So I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the Lean Startup. Um, and Lean Analytics is kind of taking that concept and applying it to how you, um, what are the things that you measure in every stage of your startup. So it's written by Ben Yoskovitz and Alistair Kroll. It's called Lean Analytics, and it will actually break down by business um, uh, model. So different different ones like SaaS, e-commerce, mobile apps, um, social networks, like whatever your startup is, it will break down the different stages of that business and which metrics you should be looking at and measuring at every stage to get to the next one. Very good. So four books there that we can all check out, Tools of Titans, Things a Little Bird Told Me and the Steve Jobs Bio and Lean Analytics. I love it. Thank you so much. Um, what is the best way, Carl, for people to connect with you? 
if you're working on a startup, if you want some some kind of business advice or just uh, information on SaaS, that kind of thing, I have a personal website called kylerackey.com that people can go and sign up to an email um, newsletter and I'll, uh, I write new posts on Medium and that sort of thing. I'm also working on a book, um, so that's more on the SaaS and, and startup side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously if people are interested in the product, if they write proposals, they can check out proposify.com. So that's com and proposify.com for, for the proposal side of things when, you, when you're looking to start your, to, to use some of that um, platform that Carl has, which, which as I said before, is great. So I'd recommend highly. Hey, before I ask my last question, I want to just thank you for all the work that you've been doing in the marketplace. Um, I know there's, uh, like we were saying before, you've got quite a bit of an audience here in Australia and I'm sure right across the globe helping uh, small businesses and large businesses, I'm sure, just making their lives easier with proposals and uh, generating um, revenue from that. Uh, but more specifically for you, you know, jumping onto this call with us and sharing your words of wisdom and you took time out of your day. So appreciate your time and thank you so much. For, uh, for my final question, when uh, all is said and done, do you think about legacy? And if you do, what do you want to leave and be remembered for? And tell us why. Whoa, that's a big question. You know, I think about how, uh, you know, where I'm at right now, I hope, I hope it's not the last thing that I do. I hope that there's more afterwards. Um, I, I think a lot about my kids, my sons, and they're, one is 10 and the other is five, uh, two boys. They, um, you know, I want them to grow up and, and when they're uh, older than me, you know, whether I'm here or not, I, I hope that I'm remembered for being a good person and, <laughs> and being good to, you know, my children and my employees and, and other people. And then secondly, I guess, uh, being known for, you know, having, having built uh, in a, a world-class business. That's kind of what I think about for legacy. Well, I appreciate that. Um, that's uh, definitely something great to look forward to. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for hanging out with me and Kyle. I hope you enjoyed that and you got some value. He was definitely bringing lots of value throughout the show. So remember to um, head on over to businessgenerals.com forward slash Kyle R and uh, get those show notes. And, um, you know, we've prepared that nicely for you. It's a PDF download. Just go and download it there. And to connect with Kyle, jump on to kylerackey.com. And you can also check out the Proposify podcast. So thank you so much for coming on to the Business Journalist podcast, Carl, and for sharing your story with us. We are absolutely grateful. You are a true business general. Thank you. Hey, what's up, Business Journalist family? Thank you for joining me and for listening to the Business Journalist podcast. Connect with me at Davis Mutabwa. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-U-T-A-B-W-A. Connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. And you can certainly find me at our podcast blog, businessjournals.com. And while you're there, remember to access all the show notes, a ton of free resources, killer training, and so much more. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Ciao.